Welcome back, everyone, to the Debate Without Debate podcast. It's a new week, which means we have a new episode for you, a little bit of a different one. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Jonathan Metzl. I'm sure this is going to be a wonderful conversation, but for those who don't already know you, Dr. Metzl, could you give a little bit of a quick introduction, a background on yourself? Director of the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt. I'm trained as a psychiatrist and as a sociologist. I study race and politics and health. Um, I've had a, a career studying everything from you know, really kind of some of the more polarizing topics uh, in the country, racism, gun violence. My last book was about uh, whiteness in America. And so really trying to look at, at areas where we become very, very polarized or are kind of entrenched and trying to think about ways that we might, you know, get out of the boxes that we that we dig our that we kind of put ourselves in. Fantastic. And that's perfectly in line with with our mission here to depolarize through through conversations just like we're having. Joey, knock it off with the first question. Yeah. So um, I would love to dive deeper into your most recent book, Dying of Whiteness. At first, I was fairly apolitical before reading your book. It was very eye-opening to me um, to understand just the intersectionality of how race um, and all these other social variables come into play. I'm curious on your end, why did you title the book Dying of Whiteness? You know, it's interesting. I, I didn't I didn't start out writing a book that even was going to be about white racial politics. And, and I try to be very clear when I talk to people about the book that I'm not talking about whiteness as an identity. I'm not talking about whiteness as a biology. There's no genetics of whiteness that I'm talking about. Really, what I tell the story of in the book is how kind of the politics for certain people of what it means to be what it means to be white means having to adopt some kind of platform that is kind of anti-immigrant, anti-government, pro-gun. And just, you know, when, when that's your starting point, it leads you down this path to positions that are really bad for you and really bad for society. And so um, I, I can tell you that I started off thinking I was going to write a book about the Affordable Care Act in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason I started that was because, you know, there's a lot of bad health in Tennessee. There's a lot of chronic illness. And when the Affordable Care Act came down the pike, it really was an opportunity for people in Tennessee who were kind of working class and lower income to, to get health care. Um, also, people were going bankrupt. They were not getting uh, the medical care they need. They were paying way too much for their prescription drugs. And, and so I thought this is a great opportunity for Tennessee to get healthy in a way. And instead, what happened was Tennessee rejected the Affordable Care Act. And I, I started out kind of telling the story of why that was. And a lot of people were like, I think this is nuts. We should get the health care. We should expand Medicaid. But I met a, a core of people who would tell me, well, even though I know this could save my life, I'll give you a quote from a guy I talked to. I talked to a guy who was dying of kidney failure. He needed to see a doctor. And he said, I know this would help me, but I'm not signing up for a program that, as he put it, um, is going to send my tax dollars to help Mexicans and welfare queens. Mm -hmm. So this idea that basically there's this program that could help me, but gosh, these other immigrants and minorities might be gaming the system. And so it was really the power of this ideology. I mean, think about that. There's an ideology that's so powerful. The guy who needs dialysis is willing to give up medical treatment because he's so worried that other people are going to game the system. And so, you know, part of the story of the book is kind of stories like that, how what it means to be white in America um, in, in different in different settings is so powerful that it forces people instead of forming kind of common community with people who might actually have 
similar socioeconomic interests to them, but instead what happens is they're told that what it means to be white is to kind of, you know, draw, you know, circle the wagons and all these kind of things. And it ends up being terrible for them and terrible for everyone else. hundred percent. And, and that's a perfect segue to, to our first topic of conversation, which is healthcare main focus of your book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just as a starter, why do you think party lines have played such an integral role in our healthcare debate? I mean, it, you see it happening now a ton, and there's not even consensus on on the Democratic side, um, and I would even argue on the Republican side. So where where is party lines coming in to distort this conversation? Well, I think you know what we see now more more clearly than ever, and even in my research, is that there are powerful economic interests that try to polarize everybody and, and make them feel like. I mean, one of the big frustrations with my book, and it was the most powerful in healthcare, is I felt like if you just stripped away the red or the blue or the this or the that and, you know, whatever, people actually kind of, a lot of people <laughs> said the same thing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of powerful interest, a lot of powerful financial interest in telling people that you're a Republican and that's your identity and your identity is rejecting this thing called the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so I think number one was there's there was just a lot of very powerful, dark forces in this country that are trying to tell people that you'll never be able to get along. You'll never have anything to say to each other. And that was certainly, certainly true in the stuff I saw with healthcare, where, you know, if, if it was any other time, I mean, the irony of the Affordable Care Act is it came from a Republican plan. In other words, the Democrats thought, well, gosh, this will be easy because all we're doing is taking the Democrat, the Republican plan, which is what Republicans already say they want. They want a public-private partnership. They don't. They want the health insurance industry to be involved. Um, they want there to be options for states to create competition. Like that was a Republican idea, and then the Democrats said, "Okay, we're going to build our plan around that because that way we can get bipartisan support." Um, but I think that really there's this fear of social programs. There's this fear of helping other people in times of need. And I think that's just tapped into by a lot of this rhetoric. And so that's number one. And then number two is, of course, I study race. And there's a long history of um, fear that social programs will cause races to mix with each other. Um, that's That's been true from, um, you know, I call it racial resentment. But for example, when... President Truman, President Johnson, when they tried to implement everything from Medicare to Medicaid to desegregating hospitals, trying to create a national health program. Every time there's tried to be some kind of thing, um, politicians, particularly conservative politicians in the South, some Democrats, some Republican, have kind of whipped up the fear among their white base that this means that you're going to be in a hotel room with a black person or something like that. So there's a history of racism in our country that makes what you need to do when you're creating a healthcare program is everybody's got to be in the same boat. That's how you, that's how you make an effective healthcare program. But when you play to racism, unfortunately we have these, we have these historical fault lines in our country that make it much harder for people to, to get along. Mm -hmm. It seems like every single time a progressive healthcare plan is trying to be implemented, for example, the 10 care act or um, the affordable care act, it always seems like it's the wrong time. Um, both on the left and on the right, something doesn't work out. So I'm curious, when is it the right time to implement these sorts of policies? When will it be effective? Yesterday. I mean, the thing is, (laughs) the timing creates itself. Like there's never a more important time than right now, right? In other words, red states need to expand Medicaid right now. There is absolutely 
no excuse. Not expanding Medicaid is killing people. Um, and not only that, it's making our financial system worse. And also red states in this horrible moment are leaving a, an established program and money on the table, right? And so the, now would be a great time <laughs> to, to expand Medicaid. And, and in, in the beginning, people thought, well, this is a great time. I mean, even Republican governors and, 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 and state officials were saying, you know, hey, we have this bill and people need healthcare right now. Um, so I think what we're seeing right now is that, um, you know, Trump and other people have turned this into a very polarizing kind of conversation where it's it's about all these other things and all these kind of things they distracted. But really, there's never a more opportune time than right now to expand Medicaid across the country. Um, and the fact that we're not doing it shows that really it's it's never the right time. Peacetime, wartime, whatever, because now people's lives are on the line. And, you know, I, I really think that there needs to be a national move right now. I mean. I, I support Medicare for all, but that would take a lot of administrative doing. But right now we could expand Medicaid tomorrow everywhere and people would have protection. And so um, I think that the idea that it's never the right time is, is particularly in this pandemic, so urgent right now that, you know, I mean, there's never a more important time than right now when people are dying. Absolutely. Uh, and, and moving, I guess, into a little bit of that polarization aspect you were discussing, living in D.C. for the last you know, eight months, I've kind of seen it with, with my own face. I've seen the ugliness. I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly, as people would say. Do you think the best strategy is to fight fire with fire in this case? Should we be taking corporate interest on with you know raising tons of money, advertising in the same capacity that anti-healthcare programs uh, and, and corporations will do? Or is that a bad approach? And if that is a bad approach, what other strategies do we have in our toolbox? I think right now is the moment for alliance. Um, you know, there are a lot of common interests that, you know, with a lot of people with common interests right now, um, you know, I understand that the, these corporate interests, I mean, we see it now with workers, for example, they, they, um, they have a lot of power right now um, because even though Trump is trying to, um, get them, force them to return to these very unhealthy places. Like the, the, you know, the, the, the factories aren't going to work if the workers don't come um, or if they're getting sick. And so I think right now is a moment to join together for common messaging. I think that's super, super, super important. Um, join together the American medical association, workers unions and workers alliances, um, political organizations and, a, and one common message. But the problem is, it often devolves into kind of slogans that feel ideological, even something like Medicare for all, like a lot of people have a strong opinion one way or another about that. So I think right now is the moment to join together for common messaging, but also to try to stay away from slogans that are automatically um, automatically aligned with some politics right now, because I do think that there are, um, I mean, you know, in Tennessee where I live, Republicans and Democrats are both, dying of coronavirus, you know? And so, and so I think it, it, in a way now's a time that we could break down polarization. Um, but, but it takes a kind of messaging that's not tied into the echo chambers that we're all in right now, you know? And so it really takes, you know, doing what governor Cuomo was doing or doing what, um, they're doing in, in Kentucky, Louisiana. There are great examples of bipartisan politics right now that don't fall into this, to this polarizing trap. Mm -hmm. It seems like you're talking about how we can depolarize on a governmental level. But I'm curious, what can we do as common Americans um, to basically depolarize? What can we do that's that's tangible for us? 
Well, think how hard this moment is right now. I mean, we're in a moment of profound social distancing, social isolation. Um, all the polls in the world, um, you know, you stay at home and you only meet people you already know. You, <laughs> now you know them more than you would like. Um, and um, and then you go on social media and you only are talking to people who probably already agree with you. They're probably, you know, are your friends and stuff like that. So we're, we're missing the ability to reach out and talk to people who don't agree with us. And in that void, um, what you have are... Um, you know, all these polarizing messages that you think that every person who's a Republican has got an AR-15 and they're out there protesting to go back to work. And everybody who's a Democrat is like lying down on the road with, you know, daisies in their mouth and stuff like that. And so I think that forums where you can actually talk to people that you don't agree with. And in, in a way, I think it's it's important to create forums like this podcast, right? Um, because there's it's very hard to talk across the divide right now. Um, and so I think, of course, take care of your neighbors, reach out. Community organizing has never, ever been more important. Um, I'm in New York right now, and I just did an interview with a, a, a woman who's a Congress, uh, a state legislator in, in Chinatown. And, and they're doing all these massive efforts to bring people meals. Neighbors are looking out for their neighbors. There is an everyday move of taking care of your neighbors right now. But I would also say that... Um, you know, we have to create forums where we can talk to each other across divides. I mean, if you think about it in your regular life before all this craziness, you know, you'd go to work or you'd go to school, you'd go to college or whatever. You'd meet all different kinds of people, you know, different people who are different from you socioeconomically, racially, ethically, politically. And and now you, you don't have that at this moment. And even if you see people on the street who might be different from you, you're you got a mask on and you're six feet away from them. And so I think it's important to think about what are the technologies we can create that will let us talk to each other and, and let that groundswell of support. And then I also think personally, I'm not voting for anybody who's not trying to break down polarization. <laughs> so I also think voting is very important. We've got an election coming up. And I think the more polarizing message, I think, you know, there's got to be some counter narrative where we, where we where we vote people who are polarizing Totally agree. Um, and, and one thing I want to echo that I think you, you beautifully stated is the fact that we are, even though we have the advent of technology, still stuck in our own echo chambers. And I would argue even more so than before, because the algorithm, algorithms will force you to view things that reinforce your own beliefs. And, and the question that always came to my mind is, is when are you radically testing yourself? You know, like, when can you put your ideas in contrast to see if they're really true? But with that said, I want to well, switch the conversation. Yeah, absolutely, uh, I, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing is, you know, you always you always hear that, but when people break down polarizing beliefs, it's it's when they do exactly after what you just said, which is that, um, you know, I was anti this, and then I met somebody who was, you know, my neighbor is Latino, my son in law his brother is gay and I now support gay marriage. I support immigration or stuff like that. So it, it's daily encounters with people. That's what breaks down polarization. And so the, the algorithms are, are so against us right now. I, I completely, um, I, I completely agree with you. And so it's really, really a, a time to think very creatively and forcefully about how can we do that? Because I do think that that interpersonal connection is, is the most important thing for breaking down polarization. Agreed. Uh, and, and with that said, you know, you mentioned the aspect of, of what I view as storytelling. And, and that's a personal fascination I have with, with podcasting or, or anything else. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering from a, a writer's perspective, when you're writing this book, 
What type of strategy did you take to tell in, in terms of the stories that you heard from people? Because I think your book does a great job at, at really humanizing the other side. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's, it's so hard now. It's funny you asked that question because I'm starting a, my next book now and I'm writing it in this social isolation time. And, and what was so powerful about writing Dying of Whiteness was that I was in a room of people who, you know, if we just met on Twitter, we would hate each other, right? The, um, I was, you know, I was interview people and they were, you know, they would bring their AR-15s to our conversation. They would be dressed in camouflage. They were showing me how much they supported guns. And if we met on Twitter, I'd be like, well, I support common sense gun reform. And they'd be like, da, 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 you know, that kind of thing. But in the room, it's like there are so many data points that we um, that we engage with when we when we talk to people interpersonally. Right. I mean, they might be pro or anti gun or pro or anti whatever. Um, but they also you can see that they're 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 sad that day or they're a parent and they have kids or they like the same sports team you do. There are all these zillions of data points we get. And sometimes you can disagree with somebody about one thing, but then you can engage with them in other ways. And, and for me, that was so true. And in, in the people I spoke with and dying of whiteness, that they were definitely politically and different for me. And, and, you know, and, and many people um, were, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably not talking about the people who said like overtly racist stuff. That was a bit harder, but I would say that was maybe 15% of the people other, you know, other people, it was like, it was about politics and it, and it seemed like I, I just came away with a lot of understanding and, and a lot of empathy for a, a lot of the people. And so the, the, the book I wrote was kind of true to the emotions of what it meant to think that I was going to totally disagree with everybody and, and, and came away still maybe voting for somebody different from them, but also feeling frustration that there were so many technologies like Twitter that benefit financially from setting us apart, right? I wish there was a Twitter that was the opposite, a Twitter that would force us to engage with people who were different than us. But so I, I think it was a genuine representation in the book of what I saw. I mean, I, I sat in rooms with, with family parents who lost their own children to gun suicide, um, uh, parents who their, their kids were, their kids' schools were getting cut by terrible budget cuts and stuff like that. I mean, people were really suffering and they were really genuine. And I, I felt very often honored that they spoke to me and I tried to represent those conversations as fairly as I could. Mm -hmm. It seems like media plays a role in this disparity. The question which I have for you is how can we counterbalance the algorithm? It seems like social media is very negative and a lot of people just use it for bad instead of good. Um, so how do we counterbalance that, that negative aspect of social media and turn it into a conversation as opposed to an attacking platform? You know, you'd think that media would be like this great thing. Like you can, you can send a tweet and somebody in Uzbekistan or Brazil or Lebanon can read it in five seconds. It, it could be a technology that could bring us all together. Um, it turned out that wasn't a very good business model, <laughs> uh, you know, but I think we need counter technologies and counter algorithms. I think now has never been a better time to think about how can we, how can we rejig the algorithms to, to actually encourage this because what happens now, and, and I see it and you guys probably see it too. I do a lot of Twitter and, and, I, and, and when I send a tweet, that's like, um, gosh, the Republican uh, person in my state is actually doing a good job or something like that. It'll get three retweets. Um, but if I say these idiots are killing people, it'll get 
a thousand retweets or something like that. So I think that in a way there's this reinforcement algorithm that, that you know, is powerful. I mean, it probably is reflecting some part of our brain where we want to be for somebody and against somebody else. But I do think that we need new technologies and new algorithms that actually reward this, reward this, reward kind of networking. And that to me, it, to me, seems really doable. <laughs> I don't know from that standpoint, like like a nice Twitter, <laughs> you know, yeah. or something. Like that. I think you know. I, I recently had a conversation with with another podcaster. His name is Nick Sanj, um, and we were discussing the same topic. And, and I was talking about you know the mission behind the podcast and various aspects related to it. And and he put it, I think, the best way possible as to why we're not seeing that happen right now. And for the most part, I think it's because like having a, a not necessarily centrist view, but a non-polarizing view isn't as sexy, right? Just like you were saying, it's not getting the same amount of retweets. It's not getting the same amount of engagement. And of course, for, for platforms, and it makes sense why, why a Twitter or an Instagram or a Facebook will continue to push that type of content because they want people to stay there forever. I think that's the problem with their business model. And, and just from a psychological perspective- It's not meant for human development. It's meant for yeah, consumption. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and- and you know, one, one topic that you mentioned in the book and, and you've mentioned a few times here, which is also a, a very polarizing topic is, is gun policy. Um, and so, you know, what we're seeing right now, I think is, is super interesting of, during coronavirus, people protesting with their AR-15s and, the, and they're coming out with their guns. What can, what can you say to people who are so stuck in those beliefs, you know, as, as the person that you are, where can you find the common ground well, I think it's important to note with those issues, um, like I, I've been talking through this pandemic with a lot of my research subjects um, who are heavily armed in <laughs> rural Michigan and stuff like that. And and so I think it's important to note for those protests, first of all, people really need to realize that that those protests don't represent all gun owners or all Republicans. Um, those those are those are media manipulations. A lot of those things. I mean, they are real people. Right. But people are. There are a lot of big corporate interests behind those protests, um, trying to act like everybody wants to go back to work and risk their lives. Um, there are people being paid to go to those protests. So number one is first to note, you know, that the forces that are polarizing us from 40,000 feet and $40 million, those are the same. There's a kind of theatric production that, that's happening for a lot of these things. And because everybody's kind of stuck inside, we don't see that, you know, most people in Tennessee aren't out there with AR-15s. Now, that being said, I do think there is a profound, a profound sense of intimidation that's happening there. It's also very racialized. My book is about whiteness and about what, what the what the kind of symbol of the white man carrying the AR-15 means as a kind of patriot, anti-government patriot versus if it was, you know, African-American protesters doing the same thing. Um, so I think it's also important to note that, that the answer to that is coalition. I mean, I, I don't think it's a great idea for anybody to try to change anybody's mind individually at, at a time like that. It's, it's so heightened. Um, and, but, but, but I do think that, um, I do think that it's a time for, for coalitions, right? It's a time for leadership to basically say, this isn't who we stand for. This isn't who we are. This isn't who we stand for. Um, and, and, and fortunately, it's hard to do that right now when, you know, it's not like, it, you know, a lot of that kind of polarization is being reinforced, unfortunately, by the Trump administration pushing to keep the gun shows open, the gun stores open, all, all top down. So I think it's a reflection, honestly, of 
have bad leadership, honestly, um, that, that this is happening because everybody's facing the coronavirus and, and nobody across the world had an 800% rise in gun sales. Mm -hmm. It seems like a cornerstone of the American population and American history for that matter is this idea of a plurality of thought. Given the polarized America that we're living in today, how do we balance having a plurality of thought while still taking into account um, the fact that guns and all the gun reform policies or lack of gun reform policies are threatening the current state of America? It's interesting that you ask that question, because if you look at some of the um, kind of more centrist gun violence prevention initiatives, um, I'll give you an example, red flag laws. Um, it, it's not going to take anybody's gun away for their life. It's really family members should have the right to, um, to, to um, if, you know, if a relative of theirs is starting to get really suicidal, they're not going to go see the doctor um, or, or there's domestic violence in a home and somebody has a weapon. Um, it's it's crazy how little power family members have in the in the face of that. And so, gun, so these red flag laws um, basically say family members have a right to alert authorities who can come and possibly confiscate guns for 30 days. It has 85% support among the population, but 0% support among the NRA or um, or um, you know the elected officials. Um, background checks, gun safety locks. Over eighty percent, over eighty percent support. And so I think it's important to note that there is a there is a, a overwhelming support for a lot of very common sense gun gun measures, but the NRA and and um you know certain politicians have been so successful as saying oh if you do anything they're going to come take away all of your guns and things like that. And so I think the frustration for me as somebody who studies this is how can you rally eighty percent. Of the of the people or whoever how many however many support this, um, but but the polarizing forces again are so successful as saying either you're with us or you're with them, and so people feel like they have to have to keep aside. But it's important to note that there is majority support for a number of common sense positions. I'd love to swing back to to your book for a moment uh, to kind of wrap things up with our final two questions. Um, but but first. What have you seen in terms of the impact of your book? I'm sure you've gone on book tours, that you've spoken with people who probably read your book and found it profound, like Joey and I both did. So what type of impact do you think it's making on the ground? Well, before um, the pandemic, you know, I thought, you know, I was writing the book to basically say, there's this construction of whiteness that's taking us all down the wrong path. It's terrible, obviously, for vulnerable minoritized communities who are suffering the brunt of this, but it's also terrible for white people that they're trying to defend this idea of whiteness that's killing them. Um, and I tell the book through policies because I think it's important to note that I wasn't trying to change anybody's identity, but I said, like, look, we have these crappy policies that are based in this idea that white people are, you know, under attack and it's just killing all of us. Um, and so before the pandemic, I was surprised at at the breadth of the ways that I could talk to people, right? I was I wasn't saying we need to apologize for whiteness or anything like that. I, what I was saying was, um, we you know let's reexamine how we got here and 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 come together and and form some community. And I thought it was pretty helpful that I mean I certainly talked to the home crowd a lot. You know, people who probably already agree with me, but I spoke with educators in Kansas and gun groups and other factors like that who were surprisingly for me willing willing to engage. Um, 
unfortunately, I think since the pandemic has started, a lot of the policies that I was warning as being terrible, like not expanding Medicaid or, um, you know, cutting education and, and uh, you know, all these things, they've just become like the blueprint for what the Trump administration is doing. And so in a way, unfortunately, it became a book that that ultimately, I think, predicted um, the Trump administration response to the pandemic. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. it seems like the younger generation wants to make change. Asher and I, I, I know that we can speak for ourselves, but through this podcast, we're hoping to spark some sort of social change. But a lot of kids out there who are listening to this podcast really feel helpless in this polarized climate. So what steps can Gen Zers take to influence the perspectives that we're talking about today, especially referenced in your book about education and gun policy and healthcare reform uh, in terms of like tangible, materializable change? Well, I think, you know, there's there's a one main answer, obviously, which I'll get to in a second. But in the everyday level, um, you know, I think the things that you guys are doing, creating platforms where people can talk across political divides to each other, I think is important. Um, the more we can do that, the better. Um, the more we can reach out, the better. The more there are social media platforms in particular where people can engage across issues, I think that's important. But I also think that um, ultimately um, voting is is the most important thing. And I know you probably hear that a lot. Um, but but it's amazing how many of the policies, everything from healthcare policy to gun policy, are set by who gets elected, and then not only what policies do they enact, but what judges do they support? Um, so much of gun policy is set by the Supreme Court. So much of it is set by appeals courts. Um, and so ultimately, your generation needs to recognize the importance of voting. And I think that if there was a kind of, you know, if you were only going to rally behind, um, you know, some kind of um anti-polarizing messages or something like that. Like you guys are going to set the agenda for your, for your lives. Right. Um, but, but I think that ultimately getting more and more engaged with the political process, and it, it's important to note that the same forces that try to keep everybody polarized also try to make it harder for you guys to vote. <laughs> um, and, and, and so I think it's important to know what you're up against. It's not just about, you know, Oh, you guys are lazy or something like that. That's not the case. It's that a lot of people, and I'll give you an example, like we tried to get um, voting close to the college campuses where, where I teach. And there were, you know, people were like, no, no, we, we've got to make them drive 10 miles or whatever, because they didn't want college students voting. Um, you know, I, I think they should be voting on every college campus. Um, so I think there are forces that are that are trying to make it seem like you guys are disengaged when you're not. But I ultimately think that engagement in the political process and voting um, is going to be the most important uh, way to bring about change. Very well said. Very well said. And and lastly, we'd love to roll the red carpet out for you, Dr. Metzl. Please let the people know what you have going on in your life as well as where they could reach out to you. Sure. Well, you know, it's good timing for this conversation. So I'm currently... Um, sheltering in, in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I'm in New York. You might have heard the sirens in the background. It's better now that people are staying in, but it's still pretty intense here. Um, but I've, I've just been I've been working. Um, you can follow me. Actually, the paperback of, of Dying of Whiteness comes out next week, so I've been I've been working on that. Um, either follow me on Twitter or um, the, the website is dyingofwhiteness.com that has all the all the stuff about the book. Um, but I, I would love to continue this conversation. It's it's really so important and so so needed right now. 
Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Dr. Metzl, again for coming on. If you would like to reach out to us, of course, all of our socials are in the description of this episode as well as all of Dr. Metzl's. Thank you for listening. We will see you when we see you. Peace. Peace.